This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. What you are afraid of defines your life. What I am afraid of defines my life. Death, taxes, humiliation. Humiliation. Clearly from the root of humility, of humus, H-U-M-M-U-S, where we get the word human. It is the down-to-earthing of ourselves, the reminding that we are not of the gods. We are not ideas, but flesh and blood, death and taxes. Mess. Humiliation. Where I will be shown to not know all the answers. Where my cracks will be seen and I will be brought down to the ground. The throne I crave will be lowered from above your heads. And I will have to hunt and forage like the rest of humanity. Humanity. There it is again, human, humus, humility, humiliation. Not all the parts of me fit perfectly. I am a woman in a Picasso painting with eye, mouth, nose in all the wrong places. I scramble each day like you, I assume to pretend that I meant for all these parts to land the way they have. I gloss over the inner jeers of the voices inside me that tell me to go back, go back inside and hide. I am not good enough like this. There is no more hiding. There is no more time to stay voiceless faceless, handless, tick, tick, tick. There is an expiration date on all of this, whatever this strangeness is, this life, this humanity, my human life, your human life. What we do next as individuals and collectively matters. Matter from mater, mother. What we do matters. It mothers the next thing. We are creating the future here in the present. And yet, and yet, We are only human, humus, earth, matter. We are not the gods. We are limited by our loves, our fears, humility, taxes, death.
Welcome, everyone. I am here. It is Tuesday, June 26th. (laughs) June 26th. Wow. It's the end of June. We've made it six months into this year. Hmm. Fascinating. I've been on this high-speed get so much shit done by July 21st when I go off to Chautauqua and then to Jamestown. It's all the same trip, National Comedy Center. I feel like I've been on this high-speed walking sidewalk that just pushes me forward to the future, getting so much done before I get there. I got on this ride about, oh, eight weeks ago, right teach, create, sell, market, write, teach, create, sell, speak, write, teach, create, sell, speak, markets, market, talk, 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 walk, walk, talk, talk. (sighs) But I'm getting through it. I'm getting through it all. Every day, I just make the list as short and complete as I can for that day. And know that as long as I am moving the little ball forward on some level, it is all getting moved forward. I've become really, really aware of that lately. Like how how life feels like this endless fucking tasks, to-do list, moving forward the ball to get somewhere. And yet... And yet, it all doesn't feel like it matters much, I also. (laughs) You know, the world is a weird, 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 weird place these days. Trying to do our best to keep up with the pace of it all. I think it is the enormity of the shift from one direction to another, the momentum of that shift in our cultures here in the West, And everywhere, too. I know you are feeling it in other places in the world. Um, But certainly here in in the U.S. and the U.K., where uh, the political spectrum has shifted so quickly over the last two years, uh, that that, it's that that shift from one direction to the other, the momentum of that, that feels so intense and startling and chaotic— So we're all just trying to deal with that while we're also all trying to move the ball forward in our individual lives and wondering how much we should be paying attention to the individual life versus the collective, the common good, what's calling us right now in the common good. Is this shift a way of awakening us away from the individual life to the common life, seeing that there is no difference between the two? that this interdependence that we have is real, even though we can, some of us are privileged enough to shelter ourselves in their back room of their back studio of their little house in Los Angeles, in a neighborhood that should be considered uh, like a kind of like middle class, but because of insane real estate prices, Puts me into the 1%. It's just so crazy. 
I don't live in a big estate. I don't have a big home. My house is about a thousand square feet. But it's a cute little thing. But I can shelter myself from it all if I want. I do have that privilege. My upbringing confused me about all that kind of stuff. My upbringing, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, put me in a generation. I'm a right between the Gen X and the baby boom. I'm born in 63. But so my childhood was during the 60s where I saw the world, people in America here stand up for an expansion of rights and empathy to stand up against a illegal and horrible war to stand up against corruption. And so that's built into my DNA. And yet I didn't have parents who stood on the front lines. We didn't go to marches. Um, we did our resisting and our protesting in different ways through art, which is valuable and, val- and valid, but always makes me feel torn. Will I put my body on the line at some point? Yeah, I will. It's who I am. But I don't know what that point is yet. I don't know what that point is. But I will find out someday. I'm guessing in the next two years. But that's not what I wanted to talk about today. (laughs) But I went there anyway. Because it is waking from the American dream. And holy shit, people, we are fucking waking up now. Waking up now, right? But what I wanted to talk about today is uh, that I got to do something yesterday that I've dreamt about for a long, long time. God, it almost makes me emotional to talk about it. I got to be in a film yesterday. I got to shoot two scenes in a film. A friend of mine, friend of the podcast, Octagon Table participant Dylan Brody has written a film is directing his first feature. It's a micro-budget. It's a micro-budget. It's a micro-budget. It's so teeny. Uh, But he's doing it. It is a feature, and it will be shot in 16 days. And there's amazing people involved, just amazing actors. And the writing is is fresh and interesting, and the topic is great, and it's very Dylan. And I got to be in two scenes. I don't play a large role. I play a friend of uh, the woman who is the romantic lead. It is a, it's a romantic comedy disguised. It's a, it's an art project disguised as a romantic comedy. That's how he describes this film, which I love. Uh, so my, my character is there to kind of move her character forward and to explain her inner life and what she's doing and all that kind of stuff. I'm an exposition person (laughs) in this film. And when he first cast me in it, I, and I said, yes, I said, yes, because a, he's my friend and I would do anything for him and B he's my friend. And I knew I could feel safe in this context because acting on camera is a huge, scary thing for me. The last time I acted on camera was 1984. I did a sitcom pilot with my father, uh, which is what one does when one grows up in Hollywood. Uh, And I played a punk rock Girl Scout, and it was this great scene where I'm like this fucking pissed off Girl Scout with this big mohawk. It's 1984. Remember, punk rock was a thing and all that. And uh, it's silly, and it's sitcom-y, and it's uh, it's SNL sketchy and all of that. 
But when I did it, I had no training at all. I didn't know what I was doing. I was flying by the seat of my pants using just the DNA, the talent in my DNA. And I thought I was a hot mess. I was a hot mess. I almost barfed when the stage manager started counting down to me. I was terrified. And uh, so... I, and I didn't know what I was doing. I, I felt so unprepared and so vulnerable, so vulnerable in that situation because being on television was everything to me. I mean, I had grown up in the television age. Like I said, I, I was born in 63, so television raised me. And then on top of that, having a father that was on TV and all of my heroes being on TV, Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, Lily Tomlin, certainly my father. So being on TV was really, really important to me. It was my access. It was my portal. It was my path to being a god, to being one of them. And so when I did this TV pilot uh, with my dad, the stakes were really, really high for me. So high that a few days before it, I had my first panic attack. And I didn't even know what it was. I just thought I was dying. I remember being in the car with my first husband driving away from rehearsal and not being able to breathe. And I was doing drugs back then and coke, and it was a complicated time for me. And I was just a ball of anxiety and depression. So I didn't know how to find or steer my way or even ask for help with any of this. But I loved being a part of this TV thing. And yet I felt so vulnerable that I ended up going to acting class after that. Like I wanted to be serious and I wanted to know what to do, but I felt so out of my body. And and being connected to your body is such an important part of acting, I've now come to realize. Uh, but back then I was so, so, so not in my body that I had no chance of understanding really how to be present on a stage or connect or intimate. Oh my God, intimacy? Are you fucking kidding me? So yesterday, getting to be on set, I got a chance to see how far I'd come in 34 years. <laughs> one hopes that one would make some progress in 34 years. And really, it was really cool because... Even when I got the pages a few weeks ago and read my part, I was so excited because even just reading the pages, I was reading it from a different perspective. I wasn't reading it as someone who was trying to figure out who I was supposed to be. I was reading it from a part of trusting trusting that whatever I needed to find in order to be present and connected to this other person in the scene, I would only find inside my own body. And that's where the information would come from. I would access my instrument, as they say, and I would discover the truth from there. And the only reason I knew how to do that was because I had been willing eight years ago to humiliate myself. I was willing eight years ago to take a leap of faith into my biggest desires and try things 
that I had been afraid of for decades. And that is when I said yes to developing my solo show, A Carlin Home Companion, with Paul Provenza. He came on board and said, let's do this together. And for the first few years, uh, you know, once I got it written and on its feet and premiered, which was insane because I premiered it like four months after I started writing it, which is not what you normally do. And it is what you normally do with a solo show because you get it on its feet and you start workshopping it. I did not get it on its feet and start workshopping it. I went to Just for Laughs, JFL, the Montreal Comedy Festival, and premiered it at a like beautiful performing arts center with like an audience of like, I don't know, four or 600 people packed. It was insane. Oh my God. I didn't even have it all memorized. But I was willing to humiliate myself with all of that because some part of me knew that I knew what I was doing and I was willing to trust that. I was willing to trust that I knew what I was doing on some deep, deep level. I was willing to trust myself and willing to humiliate myself to find out if I should trust that part or not. Is that part trustworthy? Because that's part of the trick in all of this creative work, in all of life, in relationships, anything like this, anything where you have to take a leap of faith and figure out if what you are is what you think you are. You have to be willing to take this leap. Can you guys hear that in the background? I'm sorry, my neighbors are doing construction and it's driving me crazy, but I can't find a time of day when they're not to do my podcast. So we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) Okay. So I trusted, I trusted myself. I trusted that even if I humiliated myself, I would learn to trust myself even more because then I would know, all right, so that part of me that knows or thinks it knows what is right is a little off or needs some more information or needs some more skills, needs some more feedback from the world, needs to find out what's not in alignment. And I did over and over again. As I did my solo show, I learned more and more what was landing. There was enough landing. There was enough good stuff in it. There was enough richness in it. There was enough places for the audience to connect themselves to it that I could work my way through the parts where I wasn't good at it yet, where I was still fumbling, where I wasn't in my body. I mean, the first two or three years I did my solo show, I was not in my body. I was on stage terrified, terrified the whole time, terror rushing through my body. Uh, The whole experience was horrible. (laughs) I really have to say that. And Paul kept, and I kept wanting to quit. I kept saying, I've told my story. I've done it. I've done it 10 times. I've done it 15 times. I've done it here. I've done it there. I've had my chance. I've done what I've come to for. And Paul kept saying, no, 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 Kelly, you're just beginning. You're not done yet. And he was right. The part of me that I knew wanted to run away, that wasn't ready to trust at all, was still afraid of some sort of humiliation or just wanted to move beyond it because it was just all too much. Being in this body, being terrified, telling my truth, 
feeling my emotions on stage, revealing parts of my dad that the world had not seen and might judge me for, revealing my pain around my mother's death, my confusion around my life, my my awkwardness, my needs to be loved, my fear of humiliation, all of that was on the stage. And it all felt like too much at times. And yet Paul would say, you've only just begun. So I kept at it. I kept at it. And I got invited to New York to be part of a festival. I got to do my show in New York City, which was a huge dream for me at the Cherry Lane Theater, the little black box part of the Cherry Lane Theater. And from those four performances, miracles started happening. I mean, not real, like baby Jesus miracles. (laughs) But, you know, like I stuck around long enough for something else bigger than me to happen, where an editor from a large publishing house came and saw the show and offered me a book deal, where a a touring agent came and saw my show and offered to rep my show, which then ended up letting me go to the Falcon Theater in Los Angeles, where I got to have three weeks rehearsal. And I got to be with my story and my show in such a way that I got to become an actor, finally. I got to become an actor in... 2015, 31 years after I had done that punk rock Girl Scout on that stage at a at AM, where AM Records were, it was a it was a it was a sound stage. It was originally Chaplin's studios in Hollywood in 1984, where we shot Apartment 2C, my dad's pilot for HBO, where I played the punk rock Girl Scout. And 31 years later, across the hill, the mountains in North Hollywood at the Falcon Theater, I got to spend three weeks becoming an actor, using my own life as the script, but learning how to be an actor, learning how to strip all of my ideas about who I was supposed to be, who I thought I was supposed to be, and to learn to inhabit my body and to live a human life on stage in front of others, I began to trust that. I began to trust things inside of me. And I began to find my own process in my own way as an actor. When you go to acting school, there's lots of ways for you to figure out how to connect to the material. And most of it is through some sort of understanding of the text. It's some sort of outside-in process which just would always put me in my head. And I never realized that I just had to trust my own process, which was my body first, and find myself in the role through the inside out. And I don't know what process that is or what that lines up with, with what technique, but I found my own way because ultimately we only can find our own ways. I began to trust myself in a very deep way and trust my in, my instrument so that when I got to go onto the set yesterday and the preparation I did for all of that was 
new and and haphazard and 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 not a perfect way and thank god i only had two scenes and the lines were easy and it was with my friends and all of that but i i got to start to see that i could could even trust myself with other people's words and a character and a person who wasn't me i got to trust and see that acting is not so much about what's going on inside of me but it's the space between myself and the other person, that that's where the lifeline is. It's connecting to myself enough that I can really be present and open and vulnerable with this other person by looking in their eyes. It's the life between our eyes as an actor. It's the connection it's, I understand now why people pursue this profession, why when they get a hit of that, that intimacy, that real connection, they want more. They want a chance to step outside the human bubble and sit with each other and really stare into each other's eyes, things we do not allow ourselves to, to, to do in normal life. We rarely, even with the people we love, spend much time, much more than a few seconds looking into each other's eyes in an intimate way. It's too terrifying. It's too vulnerable. It, it, we're risking humiliation in that moment in such a profound way. And yet here, we get to do it on purpose. It's required if we want to do our job right. We must remain in eye contact, way more eye contact than we ever would in real life. We get to be real. We get to show our real selves while we pretend, while we pretend to be someone else, while we pretend to be in this relationship, while we pretend to say words that are not our words. We get to be real. Because even though we're pretending, the moment is real. Trusting ourselves. Trusting that we have the net inside of us to catch us. What was super fun also was that in my scene, I got to do it with a woman called Beth Lapidus. She is the creator, founder, the creatrix of Uncabaret, an alternative independent comedy show, venue, room in Los Angeles here that's been going for, God, I think it's 25 years is they're going to be celebrating. More than that, 30 years. They're celebrating a big, big anniversary this year. I wish I could remember right now. But Beth created a room, a space in LA that was an antidote to the comedy club where everyone had to get a laugh every 15, 17 seconds, whatever it was. It was a place where comedians could come and be raw and vulnerable and tell their stories. Beth created a space that is all about leaps of faith into humiliation because most stories are about personal humiliation at Uncabaret on one level or another. And so I felt really, really safe being in the scene with Beth because she knows what it takes to take leaps of faith, to improvise, 
She doesn't let people come up with pat material, like their routines when they do their her show, which is what terrifies me because I'm a person of the page. I usually write from my storytelling, so I don't do improvise very, very well. I It terrifies me, and so I usually avoid doing her show, even though she asks me. But I saw yesterday when we improvised in the scene even how fun and freeing it was and how I was actually decent at it. What's made the difference in my life is that I have stopped living by my fears. I've stopped living in fear of humiliation. I've risked humiliation. And I've begun to live into my desires these last 10 years, my longings, my deepest longings. I see that my fear really does define my life. And I was tired of living such a small life, an unlived life. I started living by, I must do this. I must do this. Time is short. Life is limited. We cut ourselves off so easily from our humanity, from the desires that live in our body, from the connections between us, from the opportunities to live our most intimate selves, the space between each other. We need to live more into the space between each other. It's the only way we're going to get through this, folks through any of it. And that means the space between all of us. Being able to look into the eyes of the person we fear the most, the person we hate the most, the person we want to love more than anything. We must be willing to look into the eyes of the people of power, of the people we oppress knowingly or unknowingly. That's all we want from each other is please look into my eyes and see me. Please see me. All right, you guys. That's all I have this week. Please see me. Hear me. Look into my eyes. And support me. Support the work I do. Because when you support the work I do, you're also supporting the work you do in the world. And I know that sounds crazy, but it isn't. Because you're saying, oh, all right, well, she's willing to humiliate herself and risk and be vulnerable by putting her stuff out there. And so I ask you to support me. Support this podcast. Go to my Patreon page, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Kelly Carlin. And support this podcast for $2 a month. By doing that, you're allowing me to keep this space ad-free. You're supporting my ability to finally pay Logan something for editing all this stuff and putting the music in and being my backup friend, journeyman partner here. Support this podcast because it'll make you feel good. 
And if there's some other ways and other things you want to do with me, there's opportunities there also. But most importantly this week, find a place where your fear of humiliation lies and move towards it. Move towards that dream, that desire. Move towards that space between us. That space that holds us together. Look into someone's eyes a little longer than you did yesterday. Sustain the gaze. Bring your humanity. Bring your humanity. Bring all of it. Because it does matter.
summer 